living within um, like Terrebonne Parish, for instance, um, it's different today than what it was when my grandmother was my age and, and her grandmother. And so every generation takes in a new perspective of Louisiana. Um, sadly, because we are eroding and subsiding and, you know, a lot of dying. Welcome to the fourth episode of Engulfed, a podcast from the Maroon, Loyola University New Orleans' student-run newspaper about investigating instances of environmental justice in Southeast Louisiana communities. Bailey Champagne grew up in a quaint French-speaking community off the coast of Louisiana called Grand Caillou, Dulac. She describes her community as a fishing village with many indigenous residents who are heavily involved in the shrimping and fishing industry. Sean Pine traces her familial history in Dulac to the early 1900s with her great-grandfather. My great-grandfather and his siblings and his mom all migrated to Dulac in, like, 1918. Uh, They were trappers and farmers, Um, and they would move from... Uh, like village to village around Terrebonne Parish, the southern portion of the parish within the marshes and the Cypress Forest. Champagne's family moved to an area known as Shrimper's Row, and her great-grandfather would later become involved with ice companies that stored fish. She recalls the way she grew up in her community as old-fashioned. We lived our life by the seasons, um, meaning that there was traditions that we would do, um, and our traditions kind of really were, were with, like, like indigenous being how we lived by the land, and we would, you know, hunt or fish. Like, you know, my grandmother would, would um, clean oysters or clean shrimp a particular time of the year. She would, you know, help, um, she would clean um, ducks or poodoo at another time of the year, and how she would clean turtles and and different things. It was always like you knew what time of year it was and what my grandmother was preparing. In many ways, Champagne described her family as being self-sufficient due to the lack of access to grocery stores or because of the flooding in her area. Her grandmother farmed cucumbers, tomatoes, and oranges, among other things. As a child, she remembers her adventures picking blackberries, persimmons, and figs, or going fishing and shrimping. But around age 13, she began to notice how the Bayou Grand Caillou Dulac was changing. So a lot has died off. Um, And at one point in time, um, my father-in-law said, you could take a horse from Dulorge to the last island which is out there in the Gulf, you know, pretty much the barrier island. And that's, that's unthinkable. You cannot even see how that could have even happened if you go out there today because it's nothing but water, open water for most part. Deviani Carr, who is an environmental scientist focused on coastal restoration, says that while the rate of land loss is variable to change, this estimation of a football field of land every 100 minutes generally works. Um, as far as the every year rate, it ranges anywhere from um, 30 square miles a year to 
um, you know, in the areas which is not going through so much land loss, about 10 to 15 square miles. According to Carr, the discovery of Louisiana's land loss was accidental. In the 1960s, President Lyndon B. Johnson wanted to divert water from the Mississippi River to West Texas, and that project was handed to a Louisiana State University professor. The professor discovered that Louisiana, at the time, was losing about 17 square miles of land per year. And while this discovery was made in the 60s, Carr said that land loss did not become thought of until the 70s when scientists were working to collect quantitative data and map the Louisiana coast. Carr says the rate of land loss over the years is variable to change and depends on weather events in the Gulf. Since 2005, you know, you had these big storms, right? Hurricane Rita and Katrina, so the rate was higher um, versus um, a slower period, say since, you know, 2016 to now, except Hurricane Ida, which was recently um, there, but it's it's just been varied. So the range usually they give is, you know, USGS says that it's kind of slowed down right now, but it does not mean that it's like a constant rate. While land loss has already affected most of Louisiana's coastal communities, Carr says a number of them are indigenous. It's mostly the communities which are already vulnerable, um, either because of um, poverty or race, or just kind of, you know, more marginalized in different ways. So they are kind of facing the brunt of it. She pointed to the Al de Jean Charles tribal community of Biloxi, Chirimacha, and Choctaw people as an example of indigenous folks facing the brunt of Louisiana's land loss. This community, in specific, lost more than 95% of its land, making them one of the first climate migrants in the country. In 2016, the tribe won a resettlement grant about 90 miles north of Aldejan Charles in Terrebonne Parish. But now, the few families that are left have to decide if they will move to the resettlement and adopt a new inland way of living, or continue to stay as their land is swallowed by the Gulf. Sean Pine says that the threat of land loss bars indigenous people from living freely, especially with no guarantee of financial protection from insurance companies. And for the United Home and Nation, aid that comes with being a federally recognized tribe. Every time things like this, like natural disasters happen, we're not able to, our government's not able to um, handle federal monies or have any kind of um, help from the federal government when it comes to it because we're just looked at as a nonprofit. We're, we're not protected, you know, in different ways and in different um, points in time. We're not, we're not being protected. And um, for the most part, it looks like we, we are not being, we're kind of like being muted out, you know. Monique Verdan is an environmental organizer and storyteller who says she's had land loss in her heart and on her mind for decades. In the early 2000s, she was the subject of My Louisiana Love, a documentary series centered around her return home to her family who is in the United Home and Nation. The series took place as catastrophic events like Hurricane Katrina and the Deepwater Horizon oil spill unraveled. Land loss has definitely disproportionately affected indigenous communities and you know that goes back to colonial times and us being pushed off the high ground to the swamplands to 
off the swamplands to, you know, having multinational corporations since the time of colonization really making decisions that have generational consequences. Verdan recalls a conversation she had with her Homa elders about the land in Yachni Shudo, the bayou between the Atchafalaya and Mississippi rivers. Before Katrina, she took her elders in a boat down the bayou for her grandmother's 90th birthday, and she says it was unrecognizable to them. What was once narrow passageways became an open body of water in their lifetime. I often say where my grandmother was picking pecans as a child, my cousins are now setting their crab traps. Um, So, you know, to think in one person's lifetime, like my grandmother, she was born in 1915, um, and she died at 101, um, and what she saw in her lifetime, but also, you know, for myself over the last 20 years from that boat ride with my elders and them, you know, having these memories of what's water being a, a place that they would even call prairie, um, you know, that that is, that became such a different place. And so, um, most of my adult life, I've really been trying to make sense of, you know, why we've lost the land. Carr talks up some of the causes of land loss to a phenomenon called sediment starvation in the Mississippi River Delta, a channel of wetlands where the water from the Mississippi River meets the Gulf of Mexico. Over the years, the river has been so levied up and, uh, you know, we can't say it's straightjacketed or contained that it's really not distributing the sediments it brings down to the wetlands and the um, Delta region. But the lack of sediment distribution is not a new issue and dates back to the colonization period in Southeast Louisiana. The original indigenous inhabitants in the area would live off the water and would move with the river as it flooded inland, Carr says. This tradition of living with the river changed when the French colonizers built stone structure levees to control the flooding. The river would flood and after the flood is abated, it leaves all that sediment it's been carrying, all the soil and, you know, the beaches. So they all deposit on those wetland areas. So they kind of build up and make land. Um, but if the sediments are not going into these wetlands over time because of the other factors like subsidence and um, sea level rise, salt intrusion, like we talked about, then uh, those wetlands are not able to keep up because they're not getting that supply of sediment coming through. The lack of sediment distribution is just one of the factors contributing to Louisiana's land loss. Coastal scientists like Carr have also identified sea level rise, invasive species, and changes in salinity from the oil and gas industries as other key reasons for the loss. So those all kind of go into the man-made, even like the introduction of um, invasive animals like nutria. There was no nutria in Louisiana. It was brought and then they just proliferated because there was no natural predator for uh, nutria. So with that, I mean, they have a lot of programs now where, you know, they pay money for hunting nutria and there's a lot of things. But uh, over time, what's happened is they are voracious eaters. So they go and they chew up the roots and the stems and a lot of the vegetation uh, dies off from that. She also mentioned saltwater intrusion as a consequence. 
Now, as you lose the coast, you know, your Gulf water, which is salty seawater, gets closer and closer to land, right? So because of that, there's a lot of die-off of coastal forests. So you have cypress forests that are dying off in, say, in the Morapa swamp area. Um, and so, yeah, salinity is one of the big factors. The loss of cypress trees is something that Champagne noticed in Grand Caillou Dulac. After a storm, she recalled how the water would become brackish, a sign of the saltwater intrusion that would kill the cypress trees. Just to imagine what it looked like long ago, it would have been cypress forest, you know, and abundance of cypress forest, not anything compared to the, the what's remaining of skeleton cypress trees or marsh or just like a whole new pond or lake of water that never was there before. So, and beneath those ponds are old cypress stumps and trees, you know, that you have to go slowly in your little outboard to even cross the pond if you, if you could even. As the landscape of Louisiana's bayou rapidly evolves, Berdan says that the people in her Homa community are becoming more disconnected from their land and water. In recent years, she has noticed a sort of great migration from the coast to inland and assimilation into other jobs. Most of our people have been working in oil and gas for a long time, but then also always kind of connected to the seasons of fishing and um, and th that kind of seasonal way of life and ways of being. And that's something that younger generations are are not holding on to in the same ways as our elders. Uh, as the storms come and as the seafood industry is not what it used to be, um, you know, you're just seeing that um, it's just changing. And, and with that comes uh, a disconnection to, to food, literally, you know, that um, I can't tell you how many hundreds of pounds of shrimp I have processed with my grandmother in my lifetime. <laughs> um, and that's something that, you know, every summer we would do hundreds of pounds of taking heads off and putting them in freezers. And, um, and that's, you know, that's becoming rarer for folks. Um, and I think that that is, um, that's something that I worry about most is us not being able to literally feed ourselves or if that, um, you know, those skills, the fishermen's skills and the fishermen's ways of, of, of reading the water or knowing the skies or feeling the tides, um, if, if that knowledge is not transferred to the next generation. Rudan is a member of Another Gulf is Possible, a collective of Latine, Desi, and Indigenous women dedicated to social, racial, and environmental justice in the Gulf South. Through this group, Verdan launched a project called the Land Memory Bank and Seed Exchange that seeks to record coastal cultures and the native ecology in Southeast Louisiana as the landscape changes. And through this, they built traditional homo structures made out of willow and palmetto and planted medicinal gardens. Verdan has been working on a digital archive that allows people to record their personal history. She says the idea came from memories lost during Hurricane Katrina. As land loss is becoming a more prominent reality, residents like Verdan and Champagne are growing weary of the future of the places that their families have been for generations. We just rode out a 185 mile per hour storm 
and um, people's houses have been blown to bits. And because we don't have those coastal forest, because we don't have the, the estuaries that are healthy and intact, um, you know, all of that contributes to, to one's vulnerability and people are living in, you know, makeshift homes in their front yards right now. In the wake of land loss, Champagne stressed the importance of listening to the voices of indigenous people. As a journalist, Champagne has made it a point in her coverage to share underreported indigenous stories. So our faces weren't relevant until it became Hurricane Ida. Our voices wasn't relevant until it became Hurricane Ida because then people from all over the country are tuning in to this particular TV station for news to see how the people down here are doing. I think no matter what time of year it is, it is important for our tribe to be heard, um, for our people to be heard, and for people to help. Champagne anticipates the endangerment of potent landmarks in the southern region of Terrebonne Parish, like her grandparents' grave and her grandmother's land in Dulac. But since 2007, Louisiana has developed master plans every five years outlining projects that will tackle land loss. Carr calls these plans some of the most advanced in the country, with each project assessing current and future conditions that would affect the state's coastline. But Verdan isn't sold on the idea that the government will save Louisianans from the imminent threat of climate change. In these times of crisis, she believes that agency is important and adaptation will come from the people who are fighting on the ground. You can't run from climate change and you take people away from the bayou side, you're taking them away from literally their ability to feed themselves, um, their way of life, their, you know, our cemeteries are nearby for our ancestors, you know, all of that. And... I've been thinking more lately about what it means to remain and reclaim and knowing that that will require adaptations. Um, But just because a place maybe goes underwater, maybe that's sometimes, or maybe that's forever, it doesn't mean that it isn't still sacred and it isn't still home. And, you know... um, uh, I don't I don't necessarily have the answer of like what remain and reclaim looks like, but I, I for years and, and I say this after just saying that I just bought property north of Interstate 10 um, because I know I need a place to run to. Um, but I also, you know, I, I, I know that there's no place like home and the bayou life is like no other. Um, and it's, it's home. This has been the fourth episode of Engulfed. Thanks for joining us as we investigate how climate change will affect coastal Louisiana's future. Today's podcast was written and executive produced by Ray Wahlberg edited by Brendan Heffernan, and collaborated on by Dominique Tolliver. I'm Dominique Tolliver. Visit the Maroon for more Loyola and Louisiana news.